In a cave in Afghanistan, world-renowned tech genius playboy Tony Stark built what would become the foundation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Robert Downey Jr. would go on to play Tony in nine movies, become the highest paid actor in Hollywood, and Iron Man would go from a C-list hero to a household name. Just two months ago, the whole world watched Tony Stark give up his own life to defeat a massive existential threat to the universe, and his funeral heralded the end of Marvel's Infinity Saga. Today, we're going to look back on the journey that Tony Stark has taken and examine his character development from start to finish. Joining me today to discuss the many iterations of Iron Man are AP Marvel's own Izzy Show. Hi! We also have two guests today. Um, reoccurring guest Stormageddon, podcast host and producer of Screen Snark, Fun and Games. Howdy! <laughs> and we have Chris Walker from Rising Young Minds and Nerdcraft Nation. G'day! How you doing, guys? Thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for having us. I'm really excited to be back. I, I quite enjoy this podcast, and I love to be on it. Aww, Same, you guys give me deep, deep thoughts about the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, I, I was, I was proud. Yeah, I was on last week. So, hi again. <laughs> yeah. So, do you guys, is Iron Man, like, an especially impactful character for either of you? Do either of you have, like, a strong connection to him? Or is he, too? I don't know, because, like, I, sorry to cut you off. Like, I first, like, just didn't like Iron Man at all, but I think, and we'll probably talk about this later, like, Civil War was the movie that, like, changed my view on Iron Man. And then I watched Iron Man again for the first time. Um, actually, on the way to DC. Um, and I remember how good Iron Man was and how great the character he is. So, uh, for me, Iron Man is a character that, like, so I grew up in the the eighties and nineties, and so during the animation revolution of all the Marvel properties, like, there was an Iron Man cartoon. I believe it was on Channel Eleven here in New York, and I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, and I had not really known the character except from a few video games. Um. But it wasn't until the first movie where I really fell in love with the character because I am a sucker for Robert Downey Jr. He just charms me in a way that not a lot of other actors do. Um, but I didn't have a particular like love of the Iron Man franchise or the comic books before the movie started. I just knew the character from the cartoons and the toys I had and like the Avengers arcade game. Like I was familiar with the character enough, but I wasn't a diehard fan. I'm kind of in the same route. I remember that cartoon. It was really good. But I never really saw him, saw Iron Man outside of just like different pop culture aspects that weren't the comic books until I watched the movie and I was like, maybe I should read up on him. And I, I don't know. I found Iron Man, I found Tony Stark to be a very, very compelling character. After a while, after a while, he has depth. He's not just a tech playboy. He's got like really weird deep family issues but and the movies robert downey jr is just smizing every scene he gets so you can't turn down that smize <laughs> full of smize full of smize yeah absolutely absolutely um i i think i had no knowledge of iron man until the 2008 movie came out actually um i i didn't get super into marvel until um somewhere in the 2010 era. So I, you know, I sort of came into 
uh, Marvel as Iron Man was just the flagship from from the start um, of my introduction. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I think it was a really good character to, to start off the universe because of how, not necessarily grounded, because it can be very, very silly at times, but just, um, you know, Tony Stark was a normal person and his you know abilities are technology and money, which exists today. Um, and it was a great beginning to a more grounded take on the Marvel Universe that has since, you know, done time travel and all sorts of aliens. But uh, at the time, it was a great tone setter, you know. Uh, and so I always looked to him as that grounding element. Yeah, like it makes sense for them to start like with, yeah, like a guy like Iron Man who like is, yeah, like I, you're exactly right. He just like is smart and has like money and I guess the technology to do it and like that knowledge you can gain like in your if you like if you could like in your own life you could gain that like knowledge yourself and like you brought up a good point Thomas I think like I my first I, my first Marvel film was my dad dragging me to Iron Man 2 in 2010 and my dad snuck in to watch Iron Man the first time around and so like but yeah he's a very he's a very ground yeah he in the most in some senses besides like his ego he's a very grounded hero and it was a very good choice for marvel to start off with him other than like someone than like superman for dc yeah Marvel who would start in a cinematic universe with superman i mean what kind of decision <laughs> yeah would that be? like that'd be awful who, who would wouldn't be me that? the audacity would not be me <laughs> <laughs> when you have a cash cow like batman just sitting there Exactly. Or even Wonder Woman. Oh no, but we can't have movies starring women. That's not okay. Like that's true. As an executive, that'll never work. <laughs> Proven, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. yeah. From yeah. so many tries. Catwoman. <laughs> Electra. Oh, ow. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, ow. We got through um, the two. So in his first appearance, um, like at the beginning of Iron Man 1, Tony is a bad person, right? <laughs> yeah. Like he's, yeah. He's not good. Um, but a lot of the traits that you sort of associate with that bad person, like the narcissism, the alcoholism, the sort of like carefree recklessness, don't necessarily go away in the future. So what, what, what do you think that first movie's journey like did in part on Tony Stark? Like what did he gain at the end of that arc? I think like his sort of motives shifted because like in the first film, like he's making weapons to make weapons like for, um, <clears throat> for like the U S government, like he's, doing his job to do his job and like really doesn't care about like the outer consequences and like after he gets kidnapped he becomes to use millennial slang like more woke like he realizes like his weapons are being used like to kill like americans and he tries to orient them toward like something good and so maybe it was just like just that alignment shift because you're right like as a character like his character trace like really don't change um, like there, Tony Stark's always like has like this ego and is like sometimes a little bit selfish. But I think like he tries to. 
I think in like first shifting his like motives, like he's trying to grow up. I think it's also a matter of realizing that he has an actual impact on the world. Like it's not just yeah. I make weapons to make weapons. I make weapons because they destroy things and people pay me a lot of money. And he finally realized these are, this is like real, like this is destroying people's families and people's lives. And I'm getting kidnapped because of this. And also because someone, I don't remember exactly why he got kidnapped actually. Now I think about it in full, maybe just because he was, well, they, uh, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, my recollection is because they couldn't access something in the missiles or like they couldn't access the technology or the technology was incomplete. Uh, the terrorists wanted him to make stuff for him or like, um, uh, break into his own tech so they could use it and he refused and then built the suit like claimed that he was going to build something for them and then built the suit to escape yeah uh, I, I think also the real reason was um, that Jeff Bridges was selling to the terrorist leader and then wanted Tony gone so he was like hey right. you don't even have to pay me anymore if you just kidnap the genius who makes these you know he'll be in your neck of the woods in you know a couple of weeks Give him that wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> right. <laughs> that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, handshake, pile of cash. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the movie on a meta level does something that becomes a trope in the early Marvel films where it's like Iron Man and then the villain is evil Iron Man, essentially. Yes. Like Iron yeah. Monger is really like a juiced up version of Iron Man. And they do that a lot. You know, the Incredible Hulk movie, it's Abomination. Um, you know, Thor, I guess it's a little different, but he's still fighting other Asgardians. Like it was this mirror to like show the worst versions of themselves. And even though Tony wasn't a good person, like Obadiah Stane eventually becomes proven to be a worse person. And yeah. that it's almost like Iron Man and, and Tony have to face themselves to grow. I'm getting kind of overly metaphoric, but like that's kind of the loose idea, I think, was like, what happens if this terrible person has to fight the even worse qualities of himself and win? Does he stay terrible or does he actually learn from the old lessons to, in order to grow into a new person? Yeah. It, it also, I think, is the beginning of something that um, I think that the Iron Man franchise perfects in the course of the MCU, which is to say that like when your powers are level set against your opponent and you both have the same you know, set of abilities, what makes you better than them, you know? Oh. Um, and we'll, we'll get into it because that's my, that's my theory of the entire Iron Man trilogy deep down, but. Um, yeah, lay the seeds. Yeah, it starts here. It starts with Ironmonger. <laughs> the other thing that I, Think I picked out of this movie was that he in the past was living under the delusion that his weapons were helping protect America. Like he always thought he was doing the right thing, um, and that excused the partying and the drinking. Yeah, I think that uh, what's interesting here, living now in our year 2019, looking at a, a chauvinistic playboy who is ignorant to the real world around him, <laughs> thinking he's helping it, hits a little closer to home than maybe it would have back in 2008. Um, <laughs> it's unfortunate. I feel like that kind of person's been around for a while, but uh, yeah, still sure, very sure, relevant. but Yeah, and I think also with Iron Man specifically, like this idea of like, he, deep down, he knew that these probably weren't being used for good, but he chose to ignore it because he wanted to see better because he didn't have time 
for the other stuff. And it wasn't until he was engrossed in the middle of it that he was like, oh, shoot, guys, I screwed up. Like, this is my fault and I should fix it. You know, it, it one of the the scene in the movie where he flies off in the in the Mark II Iron Man suit to fight the the insurgents in the tank. Like that whole scene is just so first of all, so unheard of in movies because we didn't have tech tech or or graphics like that before. It was very new, but also just that standoff is like the moment Tony realizes, hey, I can I can put an armor around a suit of armor around the world. Like that. That idea that comes up again and again is birthed, I think, in that moment where he takes direct action to stop this thing that he knows is happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think we also talk about how that scene, which is absolutely iconic, is sort of this massive wish fulfillment scene. Like we talk about how movies mirror the uh, sort of wish fulfillment of the day. And the war on terror was, you know, messy and took a long time and it was hard to pull, you know, the bad guys from the good guys. And, you know, he just comes in on his own, beats the heck out of terrorists. They take hostages. He snipes them all, you know, in a second. It's, and then gives it back to the people, right? That's what happens at the end of the scene. It's very, like, that was what 2008 was about. That's what we all wanted to see was someone just come in and do that. Yeah, and it, yeah. it distinguished the civilians from, like, the terrorists. He was able to, like, distinguish that. And, like, that was also, like, but like lines boring, like that also was that was also like important at time too, like and very like idealistic, and like reminiscent of like yeah, what we wanted. Just to add to your point too. But that also yeah. means that he sort of saw himself, and it, it's hard to like deny that you go in and you you do this, you liberate a people from violent criminals with ease. You know, he sees himself as a as a savior, and I think it begins the process of him feeling the responsibility of being a savior, right? Like he, he previously thought he was doing the right thing, realizes that he wasn't, and he has to play catch up on that and get, get himself more personally involved. And I think the rest of the MCU is all about him being like, well, what does me be, what does me getting this job done actually look like? You know? Yeah. Like when he yeah, declares sure. like, I, yeah, when he declares like, I am Iron Man at the end of the film, I think, to add on to that like maybe he's realizing like maybe like i can like like i think i've learned all i need to know about being a hero like put himself out there but in reality like he learned so much more like throughout the next like 10 years for sure i think like and you don't have it listed here because he's barely in it but like when the incredible hulk which follows this like he comes out at the end of that movie and goes, I hear you have a Hulk problem as if like, I am now the only person who can solve these problems now that I've met with Nick Fury and like, let me fix the world, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think Tony Stark is perpetually in a state of believing that he is at, in his final form. Yeah, which yeah. is really egotistic at the end of the day. Like to constantly think yeah. that you're going to be the person that's going to fix everything in the world. It's very, very heady. And like he constantly, we'll get to this later, but he constantly gets disproven because he's not able to fix everything. And even in this movie, he actually gets taken down by staying at a cup. He gets taken down by staying in his own home by him just manipulating the sound around him. I, it's like, yeah, it's like some sort of sound thing. And he just like takes him out and then he takes the suit. And 
like that's a constant theme. Like he has to be humbled enough in order to learn from his past mistakes in order to go forward. I think that scene is also a reflection of um, Stain is hitting his weak point, which and like in the first movie is the human inside the suit. Yes. Um, and I think that the one thing that we see as a trend that progresses is the, the human inside the suit has to continue to improve, like even more so than the suit does. Um, he has to become the strength of Iron Man. Yeah. yeah. Like, I guess transitioning into Iron Man 2, unless, um, I guess, yeah, like, transition to Iron Man 2, like, at the end of the film, like, when, I guess, Stark receives a report back, um, it says that, yeah, like Iron, Man sh- like, Iron Man, like, completely fit for the Avengers, like, perfect, like, for the team, but Tony Stark was, like, unfit to be on the team, like, not recommended, and, like, you have that personal, like, conflict, like, yeah, who is Iron Man that is really set up and, like, made more explicit um, throughout, like, the rest of his trilogy. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's established, I think, in the first Iron Man, but then in Iron Man 2, like, it makes it very clear, like, who is Iron Man? Is it the man, like, or the suit, which we get into right. in Iron Man 3. I actually really like the distinction that Fury makes. He's like, you have a difficult personality. Your technology is fine. It's a really good idea. But you, Tony, you're the issue. And they only wanted to use him as a consultant going forward. And it's kind of just like a, you need to calm down, boy. You need to take yourself off this little pedestal you got yourself on if you want to be a bigger help to the rest of the world. Like you think you are. And it's, it's, part, it's very telling that... Um sort of moving forward, you see him manifest that anxiety about himself in improving the technology. Um, when even from a very early stage, the world was like, yeah, the technology is good. Like you, you need to work on yourself. And he, you know, is out there like making all these new models of suits and improving the, you know, power source and whatever. And like, it's, he's just like sending that energy the exact wrong way. Yeah, well, self-improvement is hard. Like, it's, like, constantly looking yourself in the mirror. Meanwhile, you he's a technologist. Like, he can go and he can fix and he can update his suit and all the software around that very easily and manipulate it how he wants. And that's, like, the easy route, but, like, the actual work he has to do is actively working on his personality and who he is. And although his personality doesn't shift, he does become a more, I would say, concerned person about the people around him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I think the big reason why, like, he just doesn't tell anyone in Iron Man 2 that he's dying is because, like, out of the concern of, like, how people would feel and, like, he carries, like, that sort of I'm dying sort of mentality and, like, sort of warning signs arcs throughout parts of the movie. Yeah, he treats it as a weight, not as, like, something that needs to be shared with your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is an interesting point that, I mean, the, the movie is obviously trying to do something thematic with the line, like, the Iron Man suit is killing you to use. Um, canonically, um, he stops him, the sort of self-harm that the suit is doing to him um, with the new power core, which is sort of hand-waved away, like, ah, shoot a laser to thing. Um, but thematically, what in that movie says that he is, you know, no longer being dragged down by being Iron Man? Like, what, what did he fix to be 
character wise, you know, more compatible with that persona. This might be a reach, but again, solving the problem of like him dying, like he, like he did it himself. Like again, like granted, like he did, but like the Iron Man to himself and like got out, like that was a solution for getting out that cave, like holy him. But the triangular core now almost adds to that, like a lot, like adding like another way, like showing him, like showing him, like yes, I can, like because I might be reaching, I probably am, but like that's the first thing I thought of, like that, just more. It's I guess more of a reassurance that like yes, like this problem like was big and yes, but I conquered it like in the end, in some way. So the the read that I got was that Tony Stark never needed to feel empowered it 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 was more so that as compared to sort of ivan banco that was his name right yes yeah yeah yeah. um like as compared to ivan like he had never encountered someone with the same amount of intelligence and um sort of the the technological prowess that he had and so he was matched up against someone who not just had his own armor, but also um, was just as coming and needed to, um, in in some way, he needed to get behind Iron Man in a way that wasn't just like, I'm obligated to because I feel guilty about it. It needed to be like, this is what I genuinely want to be doing. Because um, he, he has the opportunity to give up there in his Malibu mansion. Like he, he can do that. Um, and everything is sort of telling him to do so. Uh, and taking that final leap means, you know, not just saying I should do this, but also, you know, this is this is who I am. Yeah, I think the the dynamics in this film are interesting because also we dig deeper into who Tony Stark is versus who Iron Man is. You know, we have the scene with Rhodey. We have, and also like. For me, my favorite Iron Man character in the Iron Man canon is actually not Iron Man. It is War Machine. And so, like, even in that first scene, you know, back when it's still Terrence Howard in the first movie where he's like, oh, next time. Like, <laughs> I got very excited. And so, like, in this movie, when it became very clear that um, now better upgraded Don Cheadle um, will actually wear the suit. And, like, you saw where that was going. Like, it was really interesting, like the intelligent Tony Stark side is represented by Whiplash, right? And then the more armored military weapon side is represented by Rhodey. And it's kind of him coming to grips with both sides and how he can rise above both. Because at the in the end, Rhodey's trying to help him, not hurt him, but Tony doesn't view it that way, right? Tony views it as they, these are, at that point in the movie when he's drunk, they're both the enemy. It's not just, it's not just, um, whiplash and it's an interesting dichotomy of how he processes the conflict with both a friend and a foe in a similar way because he feels at conflict with both of them yeah absolutely i was actually thinking earlier today about iron man 2 and the way that sort of all of tony's best qualities are divided between war machine and banco um like yeah. you said like uh, banco's got the he's got the genius he's got the tech um He's also kind of like a rebel, the way that he sort of is, he is a lone agent. Um, Hammer tries to put him under his control and he breaks free of that immediately. Um, and that's, that's very like reminiscent of Tony, but you've also got sort of uh, War Machine is backed by others. He's got friends, um, he's, he's out there to do good. Um, and he's a very like principled, willpower driven uh, man. 
And so you kind of like, you, you compare him against both of those and you say sort of, well, why does Tony, is Tony a better Iron Man than, um, you know, Don Cheadle? Why is Tony a better, you know, Iron Man than uh, Whiplash? And the conclusion I think he has to draw is just that he needs all of those pieces, that he needs his friends by his side, you know, making, making up with, um, with Rhodey and, and getting that partner on his side um, and bringing his full ingenuity to the table, not just as a, as a lone agent, but also as sort of a team, right? Yeah, it teaches him this idea that he has to, like he has to be a part of a team. It's a very early introduction to the Avengers idea, even though we've heard of the Avengers Initiative at this point. Like this is showing Tony that he does need backup. He can't do it all himself, even though he thinks he can. Um, the only downside is with this, like the Act Three, the finale, is we get another version of Iron Man that's evil. You know, the Whiplash robot isn't Whiplash like in the comics where he's just using whips. It's essentially an Iron Man armor with whips, and it's. It, it it also shows on a meta level MC, the MCU at this point not wanting to take risks and have a just virtually different villain. At the end of the day, it's still a guy in a suit of armor who's really smart who wants to fight Iron Man, which is fine. Um, but I think it kind of mutes a little bit. Like the first fight on the racetrack is really great because Whiplash is just a guy with electric whips. Like, and it's different. You know, he can't fly. Yeah. He can't shoot lasers. He's using what he is good with to try and stop Tony. Um, but and they the end, really go at it. Up, yeah. And like, and I rewatched that fight recently. Like, Tony is uh, under the gun most of the fight, even once he gets the suit on. He's, uh, he's outmatched for a while. Um, but, you know, in that final fight, it's anticlimactic because at the end of the day, it's like Iron Man and War Machine versus another Iron Man. You know, he still has whips, but he can fly and he can jump around. And it's just, it's not, I thought the first fight was way more intriguing and showed more of the power of Whiplash than the second fight does, where it's just like, oh, here's a fight because an MCU movie needs to have a fight and a climax. That last fight is just very, it's just start and finish and it's boring. Like, if you go and you watch the first two-thirds of that movie, you're like, oh, this this works. And then you get to, like, that last fight, and you're just like, thanks. I hung around yeah. for the next last ten minutes for nothing. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I also think it, it muddies the waters a lot. Uh, if you remember, um, Vanko, like, took control of War Machine's armor. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. it's sort of like Tony has gone through the hard work to like win his friend back to like sort of like make his make amends. Um, and then they're sort of manufacturing this, this conflict again. Um, I didn't feel like that thematically worked with anything. It was just, you know, yeah, the third act, everything sort of falls apart a little bit. Yeah. If you switch that around though, it's probably pretty, a little more interesting. You let uh Vanko control Rhodes's armor and then you have them argue and work it all out while fighting. Maybe yeah. that's a little more interesting, but like that would be cool. Yeah, yeah, but that's not the movie we have. Yeah, but um, I I do think that this movie was intended to soften Tony up to make him ready for the Avengers um, and ready to sort of because he needs to be a little bit of a rebel, but he still needs to accept the the overall premise that he needs everybody else. Um, yeah. And I think that they yeah. do a good job in that movie of showing him sort of. Uh, he still thinks he is the savior, but um, he does not initially reject 
help or teamwork uh, in the way that I think Iron Man one Tony would have. That's true. I mean, back to that fight scene during, I think it's during the Grand Prix in Monaco, Vanko blatantly says after Tony beats him that he fought him just to prove that Iron Man is not invincible. And I, I think that reverberates and it's clear that he understands that a lot more towards the end of the movie, towards teaming up with Rhodes and going to take on the Iron Man, not the Iron Man initiative, the Avengers initiative later and how serious he takes it. So Avengers. Uh, oh, um, Thomas. Yes. Should we cover about Tony's father? Yes, we definitely should. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, we forgot about that. That's important. Um, So Iron Man 2 really does introduce Tony's father as a primordial force in his psyche. Um, But it it does, it leaves some lingering questions, um, which which I have, which is that what gets, what was the initial conflict there? And what does he take away from that movie in terms of, um, how he regards his father. Because my impression was that he felt his father did not love him. And that in a sense, he has been working to um, both repress that memory, that truth, and also to um, live up to his father's love since. Um, and we get that that video that he goes down to watch, which also teaches him about you know, the new element that he needs to, to fix his suit. But what, what, what was the takeaway there? I mean, I feel like with with his father, there's conflict, right? Like his father has an ego and he has an ego. And it, we see later down the road when he does that recreation of the scene with his family, with the with the with the tech that his his father and him butted heads, not because there was a lack of love, but because they were very similar. They had similar personality, similar egos, similar intelligence. And I think what Tony continues to wrestle with is this idea that he can't be his father he has to be maybe better than his father interesting yeah yeah i didn't realize it until i started watching all the films again but i think this is the first introduction of the relationship of like tony's father it's like i thought they mentioned in iron man one but they didn't so like the first you really hear about this relationship is iron man two and if you think about it like that i think the introduction if you like with that context like i think the introduction, for the most part, is like, like not, like not bad in terms of like execution, but I'm trying, sorry, I'm trying to think. Um, but yeah, like I definitely agree with like the fact that I think Tony's challenge to be better than his father, and it's just living under that shadow, and that they do end up being very similar. I think in Endgame, Tony sort of learns that and like gets that closure but we never i guess yeah but we don't see it like it's introduced in iron man 2 that's it it does feel like he gets closure in iron man 2 doesn't it i think like within like i guess that movie but i guess like throughout the mcu like there's more like elements about his father that like we'll keep learning about but like yes in iron man 2 like it is like closed like there is you know, there's proof on video that, like, you know, Howard Stark like, did love, like, Tony, um, and, like, Tony, and even though, like, really Tony never thought about it that way, if that makes any sense. Like, 
there is like closure, but it's definitely like I'm saying like an add, there's more added on to this like relationship like in future films. But like I yeah like in the film it is like in Iron Man two like it is closed, and you see like that acknowledgement of like care, but there's just more later on. I think he just realized that his father would have been proud of him and that he has lived up to the legacy in a way by just realize by making like the pivots that he makes and by building better technology, but by also just recognizing that his father built his legacy for him to inherit and to work from there. You can't, like our parents don't do things just so we can be good enough. They do things so we can surpass the level that they set up for us in a way. So I think the lesson that he learns mm-hmm. yeah, in a sense yeah. that if he has been trying to live up to, you know, his father this whole time, the idea that his, his father already holds him as above, as being above that standard must be freeing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going for there. <laughs> There we go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We did it. And um, no, but Izzy, you're absolutely right that like that continues to be a theme. And I do wonder, Endgame's at the end, of, close to the end of this conversation, but um, I do wonder whether that closure he gets in Endgame is just a reminder of the truth he learns in Iron Man 2. Yeah. And it's powerful, too. Like, seeing it like it's very visceral i guess yeah yeah um should we get to the avengers we we should mm-hmm. um and for our listeners at home we we may have to increase the or decrease the time spent per movie especially since uh iron man's a smaller part of each of each of these um like the avengers and stuff like that but i think the avengers is especially interesting because of um, sort of the way the conflict is resolved in the Avengers is very Iron Man centric. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, I think I said this in like when I took the class, Thomas, and like my response, like it's, a, it's an unsolved movie, but it's very Tony Stark centric. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting how this movie being the third, technically fourth in the franchise, if you, uh, in, you know, uh, of Iron Man movies where he's been in, if you count Hulk or don't. Um, but like as his fourth appearance, it does really surround him. And I think it's this idea that he's the mind that they centered around it. And of course, the first post credit scene ever in this universe with Nick Fury shows a focus on Iron Man. And even though that's waxed and waned, the the end of the, at the end of the day, like he was the centered force to bring everyone in, and why um, naturally everyone butts heads with him in the scepter scene is because he's the strongest ego in the room, and so eventually every like because of the scepter among other things, that's why everyone's drawn to fight with him because this was kind of built around him because he was the first hero to go public with his persona, whereas the others were either frozen in ice from another planet or hiding in this in South Africa. Or I just didn't know people existed of him, like believed in him too, like for Thor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it is notable that uh, he enters the story after Captain uh, America has started fighting Loki in Germany. So they, they maintain that like Cap is the first Avenger. 
but um, Tony is very much, you know, a, playing a central role throughout the rest of the, the film. And you see that people basically just get fed up with him as the story continues. Uh, and that's where a lot of the conflict comes from, uh, especially in that scepter scene. And it's interesting also to, to look at the, because again, that, 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 ger- that scene in Germany with Loki and Captain America has become fairly iconic. It's one of the more iconic early Chris Evans scenes. Um, but at the end of the day, the loud, brash, rich American hero rolls in to save the day kind of thing is mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> just interesting. Spoilers and then. Right. <laughs> Spoilers for a movie that came out many years ago. But like the, the the idea that also then even beyond that, once they've captured Loki and then Thor shows up, there's more fighting because none of everyone thinks they know what's best for the world and for the Avengers, because at this point they haven't really worked together yet. They don't know. And because Tony is very egotistical it automatically will infect everyone else. And also at this point, Thor is still fairly egotistical, like less so than in the first, his first movie, but still thinks he knows what's best for anything relating to Asgard, you know? Yeah. And it's kind I think it's curious how a lot of that bleeds from Tony's ego and thinking he knows what's best for the world. And we continue to see that throughout the films from Tony as well. We do. Um, and we get sort of that interaction where Cap calls him out on it. Um, to sort of they say, hey, like you, you think you're, you know, the greatest thing, but you, you aren't. If you aren't willing to sacrifice, then I don't, you know, value you very highly. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And like in the, end, at least of this movie, like he almost very nearly does, and I think that's what makes it so Tony Stark centric is because of that resolution in the end of the film. Yes, yeah, so I guess yeah. a question I really had for all of you guys is, did you, especially in retrospect with what we know now, did you feel like that uh, end of Avengers moment was earned? Uh, I, I think it was only because, again, it comes back to Tony thinking he's the only one who can do it. I mean, remember, he's the only one literally wearing a spaceship, essentially. So, like, who else could guide that missile? You know, Thor is not wearing a suit of armor. Cap can't fly. Black Widow can't fly. Hawkeye can't fly. Like this, you know, Hulk can't. Like the idea to Tony is like, without giving in too much to emotion, logically, he's like, well, I'm the only one who can do this, so I might as well just go do it, which is interesting to me, considering the fact that he hadn't been that selfless beforehand. But I think this is the starting point of him realizing that he. Like, especially post-conversation with Cap about not willing to make the sacrifice. Like, it does make sense for him to grow by going, I guess I do have to make the sacrifice. And logically, I'm the only one who can. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, for one, I'll just say out there, huge, huge foreshadowing um, to what happens in Endgame. But yeah, I think the one sort of thing I know is that was very similar to, like, those self-sacrificial plays that Tony had is that he... I don't know, he tries to make, like, he's tried to make, like, almost, like, a, sh- like, add some flair to it. Like, he says, like, I am Iron Man when he snaps his fingers. Like, he, um, like, he's the one, like, sort of flying, like, in, like, as, like, the last minute play to, like, be like, hey, I got, hey, there's a missile coming. I got this. Like, just, like, let me go into, like, the portal and, like, 
deal with the situation. Like it is it some in there in some small ways it feels like there is like some showman ish shit, but he adds like something to it. And so that, I think that it's just bothers me though. Yeah. It feels like like when like yeah, like in and like this is endgame, but when he first said that line, I'm like, yeah, of course they're gonna say it. Like it's like that kind of manufa- quote unquote manufactured moment. But it's def- I don't know, I guess it's definitely I think it is definitely earned. It's just the moments with like Tony Stark's own spin on it, which like yeah. come across can come across, I guess, with in in universe and out universes like is he really taking this seriously? Which I think there's like that, those like two conflicting presentations there. I mean, it's also a matter of, is he doing it for his own glory or is he doing it because this is the only way to help everything and there's no other play. And I think you can do selfish things. You can do selfless things for selfish reasons in order to like uplift yourself and get your own praise and your own glory. But if you, I don't think that that's what he's doing it for. I think he recognized that like, if I don't do this, there's no other play. This is done. And if I have to sacrifice myself, that's how I have, this is what it's going to have to be. And like, he takes that recognition and he goes for it and he just guns it. And maybe there is like a certain amount of glory that he is going for. But I think that, like, he knew that there's a high chance that he wouldn't be returning or he'd die. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he saw himself getting a statue in the end. But at the same time, I don't think that it wasn't outside, completely outside of his brain. But I think the conversation with Cap about sacrificing for others does weigh heavy with him throughout the rest of the time that they have together. It. It kind of feels to me, and I think that one of the, at least in retrospect, established character moments for Tony is the idea that he is no longer like the most powerful person in the room. Um, you know, he's he's alongside some very capable people, very notably Thor, but also Captain America, who overshadowed his childhood as well as someone who yeah. was, um, you know, super heroic and um, you know almost above the level of of human. Um, and that's the standard he's been holding himself to, you know, for, for all this time is Captain America. And so it feels to me like in the Avengers, he is sacrificing himself as a way of proving to himself and to these other people who he wants to impress that he is just as good as these other people, which is a good, like, third movie for Tony motivation. You know, he's still doing the right thing but it is for a reason that is mixed up with his um, own personality flaws and where he is right there. Um, and so in Endgame, you're, you're sort of willing to say, hey, it's the same moment, but you know, he's doing this for different reasons now. He's doing it because you know, it is like the, the sacrifice play, but he does have that line, which is essentially just you know, put in there for the fans um, you know, I am I am Iron Man as he snaps his fingers to stylishly go out. It it feels like he hasn't lost that sense of showmanship and of like showing off to people. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Maybe that's me being cynical. I I think in that sense, like in that small sense, like you take a small bit of comfort in that, like you can still like see a like time to sort of 
reminisce and like smile like in in like the theater at least like it sort of translates um like that sort of remark um and it just makes him it felt like a like it is very showmanshipy but i think it also was like yeah of course tony would do that like i think i remember when they were like this is very we're very going very ahead but i remember like a i think it was like an interview with the rivers or something but they were saying like we can't just have him like not say anything and then some editor came up with it and now that editor is responsible i guess for like like a like essentially like what is now the most one of the most remembered moments like in that movie i mean sometimes you got to have some cheese with your meal you know yeah some nice wine and cheese yeah mm-hmm. um something thomas you actually bring up is his relationship with cap you just brought that up and I always thought that that's an interesting juxtaposition because I don't remember if Tony says it to him in this movie or in another movie that um, his father always, oh, that Steve Rogers was his father's greatest invention at some point. I remember it somewhere in this like line of movies, but. Civil War, I believe is where that's from. Yeah. And it's just like, well, Tony, you're kind of your father's invention. Like you kind of, you're like his biologically. Like, biologically, yeah. yeah. In, in Iron Man two, his father in the video literally says, "You are my greatest creation." To yeah. Tony. Um, but he doesn't believe it. Exactly. He based on the way yeah. his father talked, that it was Cap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like sort of. I feel like there's a line sort of like that, like in the Avengers, like when like they're fighting, like it's the guy, like like my dad, like wouldn't stop talking about. And then you explore it more in Civil War. Mm-hmm. Because it's just them going at each other the entire time. Right. Yeah. Like they're which not frames on it, footing at all. Which frames it as sort of a sibling rivalry, which is really interesting. Like Cap this Cap doesn't isn't in that same frame of mind, but for Tony, this is sort of like uh two different products of his father's work. Um yeah. well they're very brotherly. Like in Endgame, when they're going back in time, like they just have, they go full shorthand to talk about going back in time to get the Tesseract. Yeah, like, I have my, I have like some smaller issues with like Tony and Cap in Endgame, but (laughs) we'll get to that. I'm sure we will. Um, In the meantime, shall we talk about the third Iron Man movie? Yes, Thomas, are you going to give your Iron Man 3 lecture? No, I'm not, because there are four people on this episode, and that really selfish. <laughs> Will you just um, send us the audio recording, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just insert it here uh, and <laughs> keep, keep this recording going. No, but um, Iron Man 3 is, so it's the last solo film for Iron Man, um, and in... Our sort of the Stuco course that preceded AP Marvel, um, we talk about Iron Man 3 as the conclusion of the Iron Man trilogy, right? Like he's still a character, he's still doing stuff, but in a sense, um, those three movies ask and answer a question, which is who is Iron Man, you know, the, the suit or the man. And the, the most notable feature of Iron Man 3 is how much of this movie he spends um, either in conflict with or without his armor. Yeah, this movie is the first time we get 
Tony dealing with being a hero. Like up until this point, it's all fireworks and fanfare, but he's got some serious PTSD after Avengers, you know, which who wouldn't? And this idea of focusing more on the person and that the armor is useless without the guy inside, you know, they can be on sentry mode and protect stuff, but for the most part, he is the armor and he's struggling. So therefore, so does his heroics and everything around him. Yeah, absolutely. In a sense, um, he's been almost consequence-free. I mean, Iron Man 2, there was a threat to a lot of things that he had, but he didn't lose anything. Um, In Iron Man 3, he he suffers some major consequences to his home, to his uh, suit, uh, and to his psyche as well. Yeah. Like, he has PTSD, and what you visibly see in the beginning of the movie because he just survived almost dying at his own hand, really, in a way, towards the end of the Avengers movie and the entire battle at New York. And he wasn't really prepared for that as much as he would be later in the future. But now he's just, like, restless. He's just trying to figure out how to build a suit of armor around the world and go from there so that this doesn't happen again. I think also a lot of people complained about how he wasn't in the armor much and he wasn't doing as much like Iron Man heroics. But you have to think it's one thing to complain about that in a first film, but in, by a third film, like you need more than just flash and bang. And I think what's also really interesting here is like, you know, in the climax, you know, he's sacrificing his armor because at the end of the day, pepper is what matters. His life is what matters. Living is what matters, but it took almost dying to to feel that because think about like also the conflict in the first and second movie, like besides the racetrack scene in the second movie and like when Obadiah takes his core, like there aren't a ton of moments where he's really in danger of death, not to the point where we like, like I think even he thinks he won't survive because he's, you can see the wheels turning even when he can't, couldn't move when Obadiah took it. And like when he's frantically trying to protect himself and his friends in the second movie, like the wheels are always turning. He's always got a plan B, but yeah. With the P- PTSD, there's no plan B. Like his own brain is his enemy at that point, and he yeah. can't deal with that. And it's a different kind of threat than everything else in the other movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's also what makes it so interesting, and why, like, yeah, like you don't see Tony without his armor like a lot because like it's really building himself up and highlighting like, his intellect. Like he breaks into the Mandarin with like tools from Home Depot. And it's one of the most interesting sequences in the movie. Definitely. Um, I think also there is this sense that, uh, so he, he ends up calling himself the mechanic, right? Cause the, cause the kid calls him that. And that's who, yeah. that's what he identifies as when he is without the armor. Like he is the person who fixes and builds Iron Man. Um, I think in another sense, and I don't know whether this is like the perfect message on mental illness that they could have sent, but like he decides to fix himself as a mechanic, right? He works on himself because he is not functioning properly at the beginning of the movie. Um, and I think that the way that he does that is by saying like, I almost died, right? Um, I couldn't stop it. There was no you know other, other thing I could do to, to get out of that. Um, but I do have control in this scenario. I'm going to like retake control of this Mandarin situation, put things right. And that is going to 
help me feel like, um, you know, help me feel in control, help deal with that anxiety and that fear. And I think that part of throwing that Iron Man suit onto Killian to blow it up is just him saying like, I'm the one who needs, you know, saving and protecting. Like I'm the one who's saving the day, not this suit. This suit is not, um, you know, if, if I can blow up this suit to save the world, then I should do that because that's not what Iron Man is. I also thought it was interesting in this film. Like when I first saw this film, I was actually miffed the Mandarin was a hoax only because I had fond memories of the cartoon and loving what the Mandarin was as a villain in the cartoon. Um, but, you know, as a child, also not knowing about the horrible racist implications of the character, just enjoying the magic rings and what the, the conflict was. Um, so after rewatching Iron Man 3, it became clearer that th this guy was never going to be more than a hoax because A, well, now in a post endgame world, I could see the mystical rings being a real thing. At that time, it was still pretty grounded in realism and non-cosmic for the most part, with the exception of Thor. And so it made sense that this guy to be a terrorist and to be an actor and to, to show that not every threat is real. And I think that also deals with the psyche side of this Iron Man film as well. Yeah, I mean, I have to, it, it really is about the same mechanism that certain news channels use to instill fear and to stoke fear um, yeah. are even more effective against Tony in this moment because he is still feeling great fear of the unknown that he's just experienced. Um, and in a sense, the, the same stuff they're trying to do to the public, he's very susceptible to in this moment. Yeah. And it compounds it in, in the form of misdirection. Right. I thought Harley was also a very interesting part of Iron Man 3 and something I've maybe talked about here before. Definitely, no, I've definitely talked to like other Thomas and other cookies about it is that I think it'd be very interesting like in t if they use him for future films, like just similar to like Cap and Tony's like brother sibling dynamic. Like if Harley and Peter had that sort of sibling dynamic as well, I don't know if they'll explore it. I think it would be very interesting. And I feel like- I would love could, that. Yeah, because in almost some ways, like if if they even, I think in some ways, like if they even knew like at 2011, probably when this film was being developed like that, yeah, in the future, you're going to get Spider-Man and like Andrew Garfield's films will tank. Um, <laughs> if they knew that, if like Sony was in like a worser state, like that kid could have, could have been Peter Parker and we just wouldn't know it yet. Mm. And then that establishes like a lot more like threads, but. Well, that is like a really interesting point, which is that they were clearly moving from, okay, like Tony has some resolution with his um, father issues, but now he has to reconcile sort of the way he has viewed fatherhood his whole life um, and becoming a paternal figure in his own right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so he, he encounters Harley and has to be you know, a good parental figure, if not like a straight up father to this, this kid. And you can see him immediately hiding behind that like sarcastic wit that he does um, because mm -hmm. he's very uncomfortable with that position. Um, 
And I do think that it is just because, you know, Marvel one got the rights to Spider-Man that, that we didn't see his relationship with Harley specifically continue to grow throughout multiple movies. Because I believe that he did sign a multi-movie contract. I think yeah, he has a three-picture deal. Yeah. So there's technically one more that you still know about yet. That's Spider-Man 3, Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six. It's got that potential. <laughs> hey. Um, Is there anything else to say on those subjects? Like, Tony is a father in Iron Man 3? Or, um, you know, does his own father weigh in on this plot at all? I didn't feel like it did, but maybe you guys saw something that I didn't. Yeah, I don't remember it playing anything. I think it's like a nice sort of other side of the coin, like to Iron Man 2, like where in Iron Man 2, like we learn about Tony's relationship with his father and how he, and how like his father, like how Howard was, like, and Howard like sort of acted towards Tony and like how Tony felt like resentment. And so when faced with a similar-ish problem, similar-ish like sort of role, how does Tony react? And you see like a glimpse of that and later on, like you see I guess what he's learned from that, like how that's, like you later see like throughout like the movies, like how that is developed. I do feel as though maybe some of the um, ending, some of the ending of this movie does get diluted with hindsight. Um, specifically sort of his decision that because um, he finally comes to that conclusion that we were, we were talking about earlier, where like he needed to fix himself. And it, it took this major life-threatening incident to, to get him in that mindset, but he decided to work on himself. And as a result, realized that the suits were never sort of the, going to be the solution to that problem and destroys all of them at the end of this movie. That's his sort of conclusion is, um, you know, these suits are not as integral to me being Iron Man as I thought they were. So they don't need to be around anymore. Um, that conclusion doesn't, stick yeah it doesn't but why would it stick like he still has the ability to make more suits like it's not like he's dead or he's just incapacitated lost his mind or something like that like destroying the suits is more symbolic in my feeling about it more symbolic than anything it's done for the show to like show that we don't need this right now, but hey, I still have my brain. I still got money. We can yeah, bring I, it back whenever we want. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think like when he throws the arc reactor into the ocean, I was like, this, I don't believe this. Cause like you have Age of Ultron coming out like later on, like two years yeah. later. And so that was one of them. I remember when I first watched it, that was like one of my big gripes with the film. But like, I Thought it was interesting though, like that sort of relapse he fight he talks about in Civil War, and so it has. I think it pays off a little bit, but it does feel like if you like if you just like if you like looked at the Iron Man three trilogy, and compared to like other movies, like it doesn't feel like it feels like. Like there's there's so much more after Iron Man. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's more symbolic of the fact that he's not the only person who needs to 
wear the armor, have the armor. I think also like he was stockpiling armors, creating all of these different variants for different scenarios. Whereas in all the movies going forward, he has whatever suit he has on him or whatever nanotech, but like he doesn't have a stockpile of suits to launch all over the place, especially after Ultron, you know? And I think that's what Iron Man 3 is leading up to. Like the idea of having all of this armor is maybe not the solution. And then once, you know, things go south with Ultron, it really cements home. Maybe there's another way because creating a ton of tech is not the answer. Yeah. Well, that's fundamentally why he creates Ultron because he wants to have all this tech everywhere in order to be able to take out uh, non-human, non-Earth-based threats when they come. Because I forget... Uh, he says like a line to Cap where it's like, we can handle what's down here, but up there, like that's, that's a completely different story. We need this. Yeah, that's the quote, I guess, a transition to Ultron. That's the quote I just grabbed online and put it here because it sets up. It says, we're the Avengers. Like we can bust armed ears all the live yes. long day, but like that up there, like that's the end game. And that him like building that suit of armor in the world, like him like paranoid for like what's to come that like sets up it sets up a lot like it's always like he's always thinking about it. it's always in his mind well yeah that's the classic human response right is like the fear of the unknown the other like i yeah. i don't know what's out there so instead i want to protect us from it because it all has to be bad right yeah. yeah it's like trying to keep ahead of the threat i interpreted ultron as a way for him to both um, get himself out of the hero game, like try to stay true to that conclusion at the end of Iron Man 3 where he didn't want to be Iron Man anymore or like didn't want to fill that role, but still felt that responsibility to keep people safe. And so his thought is like, all right, like I've privatized world peace. Now can I automate it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also that thing like when you're a professional in an advancing field, at the end of the day, you're trying to work yourself out of a job. Like not really, really, but like you want to continue to innovate. So whatever you're doing now, three years from now, either a program or some other thing can do it so you can do other things. And I think that's the mindset that Tony's in by the time we get to Age of Ultron is I don't want to be here anymore because we need something better than me. And let me create that thing so I don't have to do this job. I can do other jobs. Yeah, absolutely yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they want he wants to like end the fights. Like we can go home. Like he's which so, goes so, so well. Yes. So so well. <laughs> yes. Who would have thought just sentient beings would you know not trust humans? Yeah. Skynet, you guys. Skynet. Basic. 80s movie logic. <laughs> mm. That's what annoys me is like all the gags in Endgame about time travel. So clearly these movies exist in this world, but like we have to assume Tony Stark never saw Terminator or just <laughs> didn't well, think he could happen. Because this is the like this is what always happens. Like in the world today, like our real world, the people who are actually like in AI fucking hate terminator and all of the movies where this happens because they're like like that's fiction we're actually working on a real thing and if it were to actually happen in real life we would all be like didn't you see terminator and they'd be like we didn't think that that was really gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you know what? Why why should robots trust us not to just eliminate them over time? You make it sentient no, enough, it's going to happen. I'm just saying. No, yeah. I mean, the, the, the narrative of Ultron, uh, while conflicting with Jarvis, um, looking into the history of the world and seeing what humans do, like, it's not an illogical jump for him to go, oh, well, I get this. This is really logical. The problem is the people. Like, yeah. I, I get that living in the world we're in now. And I think that what's yeah. really interesting about Tony's character though, and how we see a bit of regression in Ultron is the minute that Ultron becomes a thing. And then Tony gets inspired again. He's like, no, no, we have to make another, another intelligence, but this time it's Jarvis. So we can trust it. And like, I think Bruce Banner's reaction is all our reactions of, <laughs> What? Yeah. Did you not just see what happened? Like, what are you talking about? Sir, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> like, take a step back, man. <laughs> you know, you I shot mean, yourself in the foot once. Like, let's not do it again. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 a it's a weird movie because I truly really love Age of Ultron on a lot of levels for on the meta level of like the comedy that introduces and some of the character interactions. But on the other hand, like there's a ton of problematic stuff in the story and growth of characters in the whole. And I think Tony's character suffers just like the others. Like, yeah. like it's funny to see him trying to lift the hammer with Rhodey and like both of them bickering that they're neither of them are pulling like that's fun <laughs> character stuff. But then all the stuff with Ultron, it's like, it's clear fear and what Scarlet Witch was capable of easily regress tony because at the end of the day he's human right and at the end of the day you're going to give in to panic and fear if it's strong enough and while the regression happens and isn't and isn't unfounded it's still clearly here and the reason why i think we do another loop on the way to end game is because of what we do in the face of panic and fear yeah i think like i think you're absolutely right like his like sort of Tony Stark's regression like starts in Ultron, especially with Scarlet Witch's vision. Like, yes, yeah, like we see like him suffering through like PTSD and like what he thinks about when he interacts with people. But like in Ultron, it is re- in a sense real for him to see like this could be his future. All his friends are dead, and Cap says like you could have saved us, and he's very. And in some senses, like, it's not in his head, like, he's seeing that in front of him, like, the world being destroyed by this otherworldly threat that, like, his PTSD sort of scares him into, like, sort of believing and having. But that's all in his head. Like, now it's from his head into reality. Mm. Yes. And he's already beaten that reality once, but who's to say that he did it well enough that it won't come back again? Exactly. Or just in a different form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, think this movie also starts like a semblance of raw emotional fear too. Like Tony's in a fragile place still. And like when we go to Civil War, like he's even more fragile when he finds out what he finds out. It makes it even worse. You know, at this point, yeah. we're just kind of out sure. of control. Yeah. Like I think, I think what Civil War does, I guess, to talk about regression. I think Age of Ultron established like the regression establishes like Tony Stark's regression, but in Civil War, it manifests, and you really like for me like that's that was Civil War is my turning point and how I saw Tony Stark 
because it shows how human this character is. And like you sort of see it before by like the fact that he doesn't have any powers, like he uses wits and this technology and like his intellect to get him like to get him through the fight. But you really show but it really shows here like how he suffers and like he is his hero, but he like does relapse at times and like, you know, he split up with Pepper, like he starts building suits again. Like you see that through like the story conveyed. And it's really well done. And I think in like out of all like the non sort of out of all the out of all the movies Iron Man is in that are not his own, I think this is one of the best ones. Yeah. Um I think you do see Tony Stark going off the rails a little bit because he has stopped fully committing to the Iron Man thing. Um and now he's pulled in different directions, right? Like he is trying to accomplish multiple objectives and that's not what he's good at. Yeah. He's spreading well, himself think- too thin. Yeah, well, and I think that's most obvious with him agreeing with General Ross, a person that he butted heads with so much, and the kind of character he would butt heads with, um, now Senator Ross, I think, by now. Right. Like, the the idea that he would agree with something that even four years earlier he would have like dismissed out of hand shows his growth to a point that he understands that this has gone, gone beyond him and that he can't do it himself. But because of his panic, he's also leaning into something that's not a clear answer. Um, Because, like, the thing about Civil War is that it's mostly designed to show that kind of everybody's wrong. Like, besides the folks who are wrapped up in it because they just want to feel safe, like, the, the leaders, essentially, Cap and Iron Man, are both wrong to a degree. You could argue in favor of either of them and probably be right. But at the end of the day, finding out finding out the what winter soldier did makes uh logic irrelevant at that point because by the end of the movie it's not about logic anymore tony is just mad on a personal level and none of the superheroes matter anymore yeah i mean you have to imagine that for a person whose you know uh parents died when you were young that you've imagined like every possible way you could have prevented that um right so I think for him to realize, like, I am in a position of power um, facing off with someone who, you know, killed my parents, this is, you know, a little bit in its own way why I do this, is so that when I have opportunities like these to punish those who, like, killed people close to me, I can do it. Right. And it almost becomes irrelevant that it wasn't, you know, that obviously Bucky wasn't in control of his senses and didn't want to do it. But none of that matters in that moment because all Tony can see is that he killed his parents and he misses his parents and he wishes that it hadn't happened. And so at least if I stop this now, I can stop it from happening again. And whether that's logical or not is irrelevant at this point. The the regression has hit like max capacity and he has to and he's burning out on all of the things that are going on. All of it has come to a head here, you know, and and it's where we see Tony at his most fractured. Yeah. yeah. And like also, oh, oh, I was going to, oh, go ahead, actually. I was going to interject that Robbie Downey Jr. just did such a great job, like showing that in that final fight. That's all I was going to say. Yeah. I, I was going to say the same thing, but also <laughs> that, like, he plays the revenge that he wants so just intoxicating because, like, it is a very intoxicating emotion to get in front of the person who killed your parent 
and immediately after you find out that they killed your parents and want to go after them. Like, and he just brings such a visceral, just like, you feel like he just wants to scream in his face and then just shoot him in the head the entire time. And it's like kind of like a small breakdown that's just happening in front of your face right then and there. Yeah. Yeah. And we're also seeing the two stoic leaders of the Avengers both fighting for personal reasons. Because at this yeah. point, you know, the argument against Cap is like, yes, you should be free to do as you choose. But also Cap is really fighting for Bucky, his best friend, a person he still believes in because he's a Boy Scout. And at the end of the day, he's fighting Tony, his other best friend, because a lifelong friend is trumping logic and, and, and friendship at this point. And he's just trying to save this person who did a terrible thing that he's ignoring. You know, right. and that yeah. he knew about. But he also knows that he didn't have his mind in the right place. Like, he didn't do this knowingly. He was brainwashed into taking commands. Because he also bombs. He also kills um, King T'Chaka of Wakanda. And T'Challa wants right. to go after him and kill him. But, like, even T'Challa, when he recognizes that Barnes didn't do this of his own volition, he, like willingly lets him come to Wakanda to get like to be put into a cryogenic sleep in order to cure his brainwashing whenever that should be found. Yeah. Yeah. It it shows the difference. Actually that's a good point that T'Challa shows the 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 logical versus the emotional, right? Like Tony's yeah. response is purely emotional. He saw his parents killed by this guy who wants to kill him. Doesn't matter. Whereas T'Challa also saw now sees why he did what he did and and logically knows this man was not responsible. His mind was not his own. And it yeah. kind of gives that parallel, which, you know, of course you realize in the moment, but is like way more uh, out, outspoken and uh, obvious when we discuss it. There's like a certain amount of wisdom that T'Challa has that to, that Tony doesn't have in the same moment. For sure. Yeah. But yeah. also T'Challa like goes after um goes after him earlier in the movie and just like is ready to go for it. But I think he calms down towards the end. Meanwhile, Tony is just seeing red because he's just freshly seen it and it's fresh for him. Yeah. Yeah. Just a reminder of why Civil War is such a good movie. Ugh. Yep. <laughs> yes. And it, it really is. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing basically a hero at his lowest point is a villain. It is essentially what we get. Um, yeah. Because it is structured as, you know, from Captain America's point of view, Iron Man is, is the villain because he's just at wit's end at this point. Well, you think about the quote from uh, a different franchise, but um, from Dark Knight, you know, um, well, Harvey Dent says you either you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. Like that's such a good line because to an extent it's true. The f it's a fine line between hero and villain in superhero stories because it's literally perspective and breaking point, right? Yeah, and that's what yeah. we get to see here. And also, what's really interesting is like we're gonna go to Spider-Man: Homecoming after this. Like we don't get the Uncle Ben story again in the MCU because we've seen it so many times, right? And they decided thank to spare God. us, which thank God. Mm -hmm. But we sort of get it here. <laughs> but we sort of get it here with Tony. I mean, think about the parallels that Tony just sees his parents die, sees the person capable, and then immediately wants to hunt him down and destroy him, which is essentially what Spider-Man goes through once he realizes what had happened that he it was his fault or that he could stop it. He tries to go stop it. 
Mm. And so we sort of get that parallel right. of of that story without it being that story in Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. I think though, like to transition and this is as an aside, I think though, like in the third Spider-Man film, like if they I guess not like I don't need like a scene, if they explain it in words, it had like some larger MCU significance, that could be interesting. But like yeah. I agree. I, I think that uh, since we've all seen Far From Home here, but with minimal spoilers, like... Wait, Chris, have you seen, Far- you've seen Far From Home, right, Chris? Yeah, yeah. We dropped our um, podcast for it today. Oh, uh, nice. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the idea... I appreciate you double-checking. But the idea of, like, what happens in the mid credit scene without saying what it is, what happens in that mid credit scene is going to f- force us to spend more time with Peter Parker. So we might get those bits of Peter Parker stories that we haven't yet. Yeah. Because... The, that movie might be more introspective. Um, yeah. Definitely. I think it should be for reasons we'll get to later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of Iron Man, uh, so he ends the Civil War kind of defeated and, um, you know, he was having a bad day beforehand and now, you know, it, it's even, it's even worse. Um, but that's not the last we see of him in that movie. We see him, at the raft talking to the people who, you know, in a sense he has uh, let down or betrayed. Right. Yeah. What do you think is like, what, how impactful is that to him? Like that, the people, just him staring at the people in the raft that like have betrayed him. That he's betrayed. Right. So I think when they're throwing like those, like, barbs and like at him it's almost like he's expecting it because like that's what he's faced like throughout most of his life as like the public figure of like Tony Stark even before he was Iron Man and so I don't know I think it still hurts but he knows how it feels and I'm trying to think of more words to say but like I just so it stings but like is he expecting it Think about Clint's barb, like, here comes the futurist, like, the man who knows best for everybody. Yeah. Um, do, like, do you think that that strikes home? Do you think that he's, like, uh, th- is that a, an accurate statement that rattles him? Or do you think he, like, does not pay any mind to that and it's just Hawkeye being Hawkeye? It definitely was an Easter egg. I yeah. <laughs> that's a line from, like, the comic. Um, like, in a paraphrased. But... He is a futurist, though. Like, he does yeah. he does have enough ego to constantly think that he does know better. He does know what would help people better than they know themselves. Yeah, that's, so that's it is a what I was thinking. Fair compliment. Is Connor. that that is, in a sense, like a really good summary of sort of what's, uh, what's left for Tony to work on character-wise is this sense of, um, I, you know, I don't recognize other people's free will to decide what they want to do for themselves because I am smarter. Therefore, you know, you should leave the decisions to me. Um, And that's something that I think he works on right up through um, Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think also like this is the biggest fracturing point we see for Tony and, and cap like they're at their, their furthest apart. And why, and I think also Tony feels guilty now 
of of dragging spider-man into it to a point like he he sees himself in in peter parker but like he also dragged this this kid to another country to help him with something and at the end of the day he's definitely in over his head um and even though he escaped safely as we'll see in homecoming the the thing that he hammers home after the defeat and disappointment he has in himself is that he wants spider-man to be better than him not be like him because he doesn't even think he's that great anymore. His ego has been fractured to a degree. Yeah, like the yeah, like there's a I think immediately after the exchange, she's like, Yeah, I, I god, I sound like my dad. And like not only does it show like the layers of the MCU, like once you've like watched all these films and like just shows just builds on like how home, great how great homecoming's homecoming's legacy homecoming's legacy is, but like he's almost like putting himself on that plane in some ways like with his father like maybe trying to repair that post posthumously yeah, it, it sort of yeah. shows and people talk about like oh, i like hope you have a kid um you know you'll understand when you have a kid one day he's learning about his father by by having to fill those shoes by being a paternal figure for peter yeah and and in a sense he is um, retrospectively justifying, you know, the way that his father spoke because, um, you know, he finds that that's within himself as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know how I don't know how valid that is for like actual bad parents in the real world, but you know, for the MCU, um, he gets more closure, I think, in Spider-Man: Homecoming than he does in Endgame, in my opinion. Um, because, you know, in Iron Man 2, he accepts that his his father sort of believed that he loved him. I think in, in Homecoming, he understands the feeling that his father had and recognizes that as love. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, yeah, like, I think in Homecoming... Oh, go ahead, Izzy. Oh, I, I know. Actually, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, all I was going to say is that I think that in Endgame, the closure that he gets with with Howard, I think it's more about giving them both closure. This idea that he gets closure because he's old enough now, and now that he has a daughter, no, really, really knows, really, really knows. But also, we see Howard at his most unsure, and it reassures Tony in Endgame that Howard also didn't know what he was doing in the beginning, and that they are even more similar than he thought. Yeah, and we start to see the seeds of that in Homecoming with with Tony fumbling to like, I think one of my favorite moments in homecoming is when he goes to open the door and yeah. Peter hugs him <laughs> because first of all, we've all, we've all to agree degree been that kid, right? Like if we idolize someone, we want that warmth. And if we think we're getting it, we embrace it. And yeah. you know, Tony's Tony's still so emotionally distant because of everything he's been through that. He's like, I was just opening the door, but that happened, you know, but we're all, <laughs> We're all a little bit Peter in that moment, especially with Tony, because I think a lot of Iron Man fans are like, we still believe in you, even though you have seen and done some terrible stuff, because we've all been there. And I think Tony is kind of, uh, Peter is kind of the avatar for the audience, like, oh, he's coming back in, let's give him a hug, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also shows Tony's true character, like in that embarrassing moment, instead of uh, making it worse, he deflects by making a joke. Yeah, like right. my. I don't know because like it's in, that's interesting you bring it up because one of my so I I guess infamously did not like Homecoming the first time I watched it I had to watch it like 
multiple times. Like after the second time, to like really enjoy and understand it. And I was the same for Far From Home. I'll probably be at play for the third Spider-Man film, not gonna lie. Um, but one of my smaller issues was that I think in Homecoming, Robert Downey Jr. was as close-ish to phoning it in as you could get, but it's which is still very which is still good. But it felt like at points that Tony Stark was too jokey. And then like when he scolds Peter Parker, that 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 was the biggest sort of emotional depth you got and what also I needed to like sort of still be on board with like Tony at this point in the movie. But sure. you're absolutely right in that he is so broken down by Civil War. Like in the Marvel timeline, Civil War was two months ago when Homecoming comes out. That like, of course he's going to deflect everything and be like snarky because like that's how like that is like some semblance of like his self, like in his characteristics and personality. And like he's trying to deflect that pain. Yeah, he's hurt. Well, I think well, and also Spider Man Homecoming is all about fatherhood, right? Like, think about yeah. Adrian Toomes. Think about yeah. the the big reveal, spoiler alert, I guess, that he is actually Peter's love interest's father, like, and is a good father. And, like, when meeting him and seeing him with the family, sees that he's a good father, that he cares about his family. He's not a terrible family man. He does love his family, even if he's not a great person. And it continues to build conflicting images of what makes a good father in Peter's life because he knows what he's capable of as Spider-Man, but as Peter sees that he's still a father who cares about his daughter mm-hmm. and is doing these things to protect his family and to, to make money to take care of them, yeah. you know, and where Tony's on the other side where he seems like a neglectful dad that only shows up to scold you when you've really screwed up. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, when we get to infinity war after this, see, he does really care. And that while he's deflecting, it's to protect himself, not Peter. Because he's worried about getting hurt, you know? And, and especially... It, it really, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, add on to what you just said, and especially in a post-Civil War world that they were in, he's trying to father from a distance because he just had his... He effectively just had his heart broken because he thought, yeah. this guy who's one of my best friends, who's one of my allies, who's always had my back, he just went and he kind of just punched me in the face in order to save his best friend his real best friend right yeah for sure and so he has to he's trying to deflect he's trying to build up walls but he also recognizes that he's been building this kid up to be something more to be better than he can be and to live on and be his legacy because he doesn't have a child yet so what's he gotta do he's built he's goes and he scolds Peter for what he does, but he doesn't, I don't want to say he doesn't, he isn't too harsh on him. I think he's harsh enough on him that he takes a step back, but doesn't really stop him completely. Like, I feel like the end scene in the movie, he could have, uh, the last fight scene, he could have came out of nowhere at any point and just shut it all down, but he doesn't. Yeah, I do. It feels like he is, um, pinning his hopes a little bit on Peter. And uh, when you when you see him towards the end, you know, scolding him, like, for making such a big mess out of it, it is, for one, putting himself in danger, which Tony is very sensitive to. Um, but for two, it's this idea that um, he's hoping that his legacy uh, will live on in people like Peter. 
And when he sees that, um, you know, Peter messing it up, he's sort of like, I can't get out still because, um, you know, he's not ready. And he's upset that he can't get out because his, his successor is not ready. Well, when you hire a 16 year old to be a superhero, like, <laughs> I whoa, agree. what do you think you're going to get? Definitely. Yeah. I think it's what's interesting is like in the closing scenes where he offers him the iron spider suit and he, he turns it down. You know, this idea that Spider-Man knows he has growing to do. Peter knows he has growing to do. And it reminds Tony that it's okay to let people grow. Um, but my biggest issue here, and it's exacerbated in Far From Home, because on the whole, I liked Far From Home, but I think because we didn't get the Uncle Ben story in the MCU, and because it's not really talked about, all we see is Spider-Man becoming a tech bro, kind of. like. <laughs> the, and that's not even my take. I took that take from another Marvel podcast that I'm a fan of, but it, it's obvious now that I see it. This idea that, you know, what made Spider-Man relatable is this down-to-earth DIY, I have limited resources, but I'm going to make the best of it to be the best me I can. And we're not, we're not really getting a chance for that because Tony kept stepping in to be like, hey, let me help. You know, the fact yeah. that the original Spider-Man suit is given to him by Tony takes the wind out of it. Now, I do appreciate that he has web shooters and I do appreciate that in Far From Home, he creates, you know, towards the climax of the movie, creates his own suit based on the resources he has. So it shows the intellect is there and that the DIY nature is still there. But oh, it's yeah. just a bummer that Spider-Man's trying to live up to Tony because Tony is not a role model. And Tony would say he's not a role model and says that endlessly. Yeah. Um, and even, yeah. Though, even though ironically at the end of Endgame, he becomes a role model, right? Like at the end of the day, yeah. it's hard when you give yourself for something completely to not become one. And I think it just muddies the Spider-Man storyline in a way that I don't love. Like I love the pieces and I love the stories they're trying to tell. I just wish we could let Peter be more Peter which we yeah. haven't really seen yet. I I have my guesses that the third Tom Holland Spider-Man movie will will be more Peter being Peter. Um, yeah. But and in a sense, yeah. this and movie was, once uh, in a sense that Far From Home uh, was perfectly positioned to deal with the fallout of not just Endgame as a whole, but specifically Tony Stark because he had been so integral in the past. Um, I didn't think that they even, I don't think they were ever able to seriously consider having this just be a Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Like if, if the, if like, if Spider-Man 3 is still like a fairly Tony Stark centric film, I would be very, very disappointed. And yeah. I think it's necessary at this point, but like you, I, but yeah, I also, I agree with a lot of your opinions. Like, I think that the fact that like, Peter almost has like a has somewhat of a silver spoon in in terms of like how he gets started in this movies kind of cheapens this not cheapens the story but like it does put the story like in a different light and in a different angle so like which I definitely I guess miss that like sort of homegrown like sort of like, like after that like he built everything up himself but um yeah. You do see Tony admire the DIYness of like Peter. Yeah. Yeah. In Civil War for like two seconds. But then <laughs> you also see that he clearly wants to like leave his legacy to him, which kind of, yeah, it kind of just short circuits 
yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I yeah, think like, yeah. yeah. I had never thought about that before, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think in some, although I will say though, I think in some realities, like, could you, like, I don't know if you could like think in this day and age, could you realistically sew a suit that looked like a typical Spider-Man suit? Like, could you realistically like, right. sew that? Like, yeah. I think that's maybe what they were trying to go for with the homecoming suit, which is why it's a sweater and sweatpants and like the mask you put over, like that covers your whole face except like your eyes and mouth. I don't, I forgot what it's called. Um, Ski mask. Ski mask. Yes. Like, no, it's like a, for, okay, it's like a formal-ish like name for it. I just forgot what it was. But yeah, like a ski mask. Like, essentially, like that's why, like, and I think that's why it's looked like that in Homecoming because like it's home. Like that, that is like his homegrown like suit before Tony Stark. And I like that it came out like at the end of the film. Now we're just talking about Spider-Man home, like Homecoming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, transition I, point. I, we're going into it. Well, I think this is a good transition point to Infinity War though, because thinking about like, so his relationship with Tony's relationship with, with Peter in, in, in Homecoming is very much lording over him, trying to convince him to like be his own person. But then in Infinity War, when when Spider-Man reacts, jumps on the ship, and Tony's like, oh, no, not this time, and gives him the suit to help him so he doesn't suffocate, but then has him ejected. But, of course, you know, Peter right. being stubborn sticks around. Like, Tony's only thoughts at that point after seeing what he's capable of is, like, we need this kid on Earth. He's got to go because I know this ship may not be coming back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It like, makes you it makes you think about uh, Happy's line in Far From Home where he's like, I don't think Tony would have done what he did if he didn't know you'd be here. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense, he's thinking he's going off on this spaceship to do a suicide mission. And when he realizes that his backup plan is, you know, on, on board, he freaks out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because because in his mind, Peter is the one to fill his shoes. Maybe not yeah. in the same way, but definitely to fill his shoes. And then, like, you know, of course, and I guess spoiler alert for Infinity War 2 while we're at it. The reason <laughs> that scene, the reason that scene when people are getting dusted is so devastating is A, because Tom Holland hams it up and, <laughs> yeah. oh my God. and gets us all. Like, but also think about it. Like, you're a kid. And what I love about Tom Holland's Spider-Man is he's a kid. He's what we've needed in the superhero movies. Is he looks like a kid and acts like a kid. And so, like, when you know something's wrong, but you can't place it, especially, like, to a medical degree, like, health-wise, you know something's happening to yourself, of course you're going to panic and freak out. Yeah. And And the minute that happens in Infinity War, all of Tony's guard drops. Like, that whole moment... Tony is not Tony. There's no joke cracking. There's no no lying. It's literally like him being like, okay, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Also panicking, and then he's gone. Like, yeah. it's the most Tony Tony has been since Civil War because his, 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 someone he's relying on and someone he considers a son is disappearing, and there's literally zero he can do. And that's what breaks him. Like, the first thing he says when he gets back on earth is that like i lost the kid like that's the first thing he says that's so so powerful like this idea that you're stuck on a ship with a half android trying to make the best of it and the only thing he's thinking about is pepper pots because of that video you know is which is proven by the video he makes and then spider-man because he some kid of his own volition jumped on a joyride he couldn't stop it 
And now all he can think about is, you know, I've met his aunt. What do I tell his aunt? What do I tell his classmates? Like, I let them all down. Because and now he's gone. Well, lucky right. for him, Aunt May's dusted. So <laughs> yeah. like most of his classmates and his closest friends. I guess that yeah, is apparently lucky. conveniently yeah, I guess that counts. <laughs> um, it's just it's interesting to me how in Endgame we we really see. I think the resolution, and that was the design of all of Tony's growth. You know, mm-hmm. he could have been thinking about how he failed or what he could have done better or you know, that he he wasn't the hero he could be. But none of that mattered. What mattered, the first thing he says is that he lost the kid. And yeah. he spent that time also continuing to resent Cap because at the end of the day, when the shit was going down, he didn't know what Cap was. He could only react because it was in New York. And, and like, that fractured friendship put the Earth in danger. Yeah. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Like, I guess to take, to talk about Tony Stark, without spider-man in the equation like that is like one of the like, that's one of his first lines like the avengers broke up like the beatles like <laughs> it yeah it is because of like that fractured friendship that like they can't like sort of come together and tony Stark and like there's those like three distinct teams like for a reason and it's interesting to see him like interact with like very different characters like the guardians and like doctor strange who is somewhat of like tony's foil or like just yeah a likeness um but it shows him like using what he has to like try to fight this titan who like absolutely just decimates everyone right and it's interesting that in infinity war thanos says that of everyone he considered tony as equal and it seems odd at first right because tony's a human he has no superpowers like you would think he would consider thor or Captain Marvel, who he doesn't know yet, his equal. <laughs> but it's Tony, and I think he considers Tony as equal because on a, on an intellectual level, yes, their psychosises aren't that different. Yeah, like, right. yeah. Like and they both Tony wanted to. Put, they both believe that they bear the weight of responsibility for the world on their shoulders, right? Like yeah. that's what it boils down to. Is he views Tony as is shouldering the same burden that he does? If anything, I think. Thanos regards Tony as less intelligent, but with an equal, you know, sense of moral the weight of the universe. Yeah, like that line, like Thanos says at the end of Ultron, like in the mid credits, and like, fine, I'll do it myself. That is something Tony Stark could easily say in any situation. <laughs> That's his mentality throughout so many of these movies that I'm yeah. gonna take this on myself and I will handle it. Yeah. Exactly. Like when he goes after the ship, that is literally what he's doing. He's like, "All right, guess I got to take care of this one. The kid yes, can't come. That's why I'm sending you, you back. You got to yeah. be back on Earth." Captain America has that line in Civil War where he goes, "You know, when I see a situation headed south, I can't ignore it. Sometimes I wish I could." Tony snaps back immediately. He's like, "No, you don't," because Tony does wish he could turn away. Um, but he's the same way where if there, he sees a spaceship in the sky, he goes, this is my problem now. Yeah. Well, and I think all of that conflict in Infinity War and early Endgame is what makes the scenes with Tony so powerful. And what I think is really important about his growth is not just his growth, but like Pepper, who hasn't been in a ton of the movies uh, leading up to Endgame, the more recent ones, the scene between Pepper and Tony 
we get to understand Tony's character better because Pepper does. The scene where they're talking about him discovering the time travel and then saying, well, I could just put it away. She, I could just ignore it. And Pepper smiles and says, but you can't and you won't. More yeah. importantly, you won't. Like, this is who you are. And I know that now. And it sucks and it's scary. But I know this. I know this is who you are. And you have to go do that thing that you're designed to do, that you've been designed to do since I met you. You know? Because he was doing that kind of stuff even before he was a superhero. And I think because of that moment, we all as an audience, if we hadn't already, also get to fully understand Tony Stark. That at the end of the day, good or bad, if something needs doing, he's going to do it. Oh, yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. And Pepper Potts, you know, when she's off running goop, it's just to struggle. I think that she was actually a really important part to have in Endgame. Just oh, like yeah. juxtaposition. Yeah, just absolutely. Like you have like you have a reason to come back if you get the chance to. But Very more so nice. than that, just like a moral not a moral foil, but like a what's the word? Just like someone to bounce it off of, in a way. And to like and, show that he has a heart. And or I think a bigger also it emphasizes something that I don't think in the Avengers sacrifice was true, which is that Tony has um, a responsibility now to his family, to Pepper mm. and his daughter, um, where he needs to come home for them. Um, and Pepper needs to be there to be something that he isn't willing to give up. Um, yes. And for him to overcome that and to finally say like, there, you know, this is my family. Um, you know, this is my turf, but I'm not just here to look out for what's mine and what's my responsibility. Like I need to do the most good. Um, and when, you know, Pepper comes to his side, you can see that she, from her perspective, she knows he feels guilty about sacrificing him because he feels like he has let her down. Um, and so she needs to reassure him, no, like, it's okay. We are safe. Like that's her gift to him is to say you got pulled in two directions. It's okay. Like we're we're good. Tony, everybody's back, and we're still rich. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be fine. Our investments like have been uh, in, in, incubating five years longer than everyone else's. We're we're all good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Inflation did not screw us over, Tony. Come on. <laughs> we still have the backup ideas, the backup cars. Don't worry. Don't worry. Spider Man's back. He'll save us. So one thing I did want to talk about in since we're we're here we're at the end game um, is ha. Strange's ha. insistence ah, ah, words um, Strange's insistence that if he told Tony what needed to happen that it wouldn't and then he told him did he though? without telling him yeah well, like, like, do you wait, think wait. Tony Stark would not have sacrificed himself if he was told that that's what needed to happen by someone else. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I, 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 don't, I don't know that he wouldn't have. I think that the timing would have been right. I feel like if Tony knew that's what he had to do, he would have done it as soon as he could. He wouldn't have waited till that moment. He would have thought he could outthink time and space. He's smarter. He knows better. And I think yeah. Strange knew that. I think Strange knew, I have to tell him when the moment is right. Yeah. Yeah. Because also, there are so many variations. 
Tony could probably never understand, no matter how smart he is, just exactly what these fractions of a moment mean. And like, I'm guessing all of the timelines, only one ends with Tony on his knees with the gauntlet. And so like when he has it and makes eye contact, he knew or or does that moment happen before he gets the gems? I can't remember now. What do you like the what do you mean? Like, I think before. Yeah, it's before. before. It's like. So, yeah, he he nods and then he goes for the gems and grabs them. Right. Yeah, it's yep. like a good like maybe five minutes before like you see like Strange hold up like the one and like Tony understands, and I think like yeah. if you I think if it was presented in like a like I say like a Cap Tony level like fighting conversation I like Avengers like I think he I think he'd try to deny it in front of Strange but would treat it as like a very ultimate like a last resort on the inside and like he sort of does that and it is about timing because of Strange like. And Strange tells him, like, yes, this is, like, the one future and you're going to die. Like, he see him almost accepted in some ways. Yeah, I, I do think that you're right that he would be focused on avoiding his death so that he could, he, could make, he could make it a win-win scenario the whole time. Instead of focusing on the objective of, like, fighting off Thanos' army, you know, fighting Thanos with his full mind. Um, it's just interesting because when you raise philosophical questions like that like that strange needed to withhold that information from tony lest uh lest the final you know sacrifice not happen um it it does call into question was tony you know sort of forced into this um situation by strange um it it takes a little bit away from his decision to say um you know right here at the end i am going to sacrifice everything that I have found and that I love in order to do the right thing? Or is it Tony's a pawn in Strange's game? Um, but, you know, that's, that's only, that was my two cents on, on his final sacrifice was that the, the big difference between that and Avengers was the family. And I feel like um, being, being told that his sacrifice was prophesized was, takes away from that a little bit. Oh, like so, like, yeah. Sorry. Like, if you look back on Avengers, like when he first, like, at, like sac- I guess, attempts to sacrifice himself, like it's very like, like if you just compare those two, like, since we're at the end game, ha. Huh, um, you see, it's like very like off the cuff, like a sort of like last minute decision, and like he just instinctually goes up to direct it into the portal. It's very like instinctual, and like it's not prophesied or anything. It's just like. You know, it's very like a decision Tony makes to that, like on the fly, like just that he knows, like, will solve this problem. If you look at Endgame, like, I think you're right, Thomas. Like, if it, if Strange tells him, like, yes, this is the one future, like, I think it does add some element of change. But I think the logic, I think, I guess, like that logic in Tony Stark's head when he's making that sacrifice and like takes the stems and like snaps his fingers, I think that frame of logic is like just still the same it's just the sort of certainty tony faces that like yeah i'm going to die yeah well because also strange never tells him that right he says that this is like they agree that it's the timeline where they win but for tony tony's biggest concern is he doesn't want to he wants to put an arm a suit of armor around the world right like he doesn't want to make the sacrifice if it's not the one where they win because then he'll be gone and he can't save everyone you know because at the end of the day he still wants to put a suit of armor around the world and so when they exchange that look tony knows okay this is the play this is the one 
where I can actually save us all and does. And it adds power to Pepper's chat with him at the end saying, you can rest now, finally. You don't have to fight anymore. We're safe. You know, and as true as that is or not, they're definitely in that short term safe. And and I don't think it diminishes Tony's sacrifice because Tony, like like you were saying, is it empowers it because Tony knows making this play will actually save them because he's seen it. And so he's going to make the play. And there's no, there's no hesitance either. Yeah. I think that assuredness is fueled by this almost prophecy of time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think the biggest point there is that like the this is how he gets the job done. And you think back to his debate with Cap in Age of Ultron, where he's like, isn't the point of fighting so that we can stop fighting and go home? Like He finds an opportunity to stop the fighting so that everybody else can go home. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I did want to say about Endgame, which I just said earlier, is that um, it's interesting, like, the relationship between, like, Cap and Tony. We were sort of talking about this in Endgame, like, Tony's first thing when he gets off the ship is, like, I lost the kid. And, like, Cap is the first person to greet Tony, like, when mm-hmm. they go, like, when he gets off the ship. And you see, like, Tony's, like, viscerally, like, screaming, like, it's very, like, unreleased, like, emotions, like, screaming at this man, like, after he comes off the ship. And then five years later, like, they're friends again, and that makes no sense to me. And they're having, like, that banter, like, they're siblings, like, they say New Jersey, and they know what that means. Like, that made no sense to me. Like, it shouldn't resolve that quickly. Maybe something happened within that five years, but you don't really see that, and it feels like... It felt unfulfilled to me. I don't know, I guess, if the story, like, made up for that in some way, like, from your thoughts, but I wanted to hear how y'all think before we um, talked more about, like, you know... Tony Stark's death. That's fair. I feel like we were cheated out of some really good. How did they repair their relationship? Is Steve Rogers the godfather to Morgan? Like, what's going on there? But, like, I I feel like sometimes maybe less being said is helpful. Like, not just for storytelling in this case, but just, like, knowing that they had a great relationship before they had a great friendship before and just like them fast forwarding past like them working it out. But also Tony was basically going to die on that ship and he got, he effectively just got lucky. It was destined that he would get saved and everything like that, but he gets lucky and he probably feels lucky. So maybe I'm inferring the idea that like after he got over the initial shock of returning to earth and he put on some weight, from being in space so long that he figured out what's really important. And he yeah. kind of does take that into his further relationship with Pepper Potts, with his daughter in that he didn't originally want to help them chime travel. Like he thought we're where we are, where we are. I have this amazing family. I don't want to risk it, but he does yeah, also that, realize if there's a chance to bring everybody back, we got to take it. You got to jump. That's exactly how I, felt that came off was that um, as his life got better and better post-snap, he became less and less angry at Cap for sort of putting him in that position. Like, he says, like, I I got really lucky. Like, I found a great future here. Um, and there's a part of him that I, I think can't be upset at Captain America still after five years because, um, you know, he's happy with where he ended up. He has yeah. all of his, his loved ones. Um But that is just one of the limitations of the sort of five-year time jump is the filmmakers wanted to have fun with sort of where all these people ended up. 
but we don't get to see that journey and we, we do have to just speculate. So I, I agree that we were kind of like gypped of that, of seeing that transition the way that we've seen every other stage of these characters' lives because of the frequency of the movies. Yeah. I, yeah, also... I wouldn't argue. I was just going to say that I wouldn't argue, like I wouldn't argue that we were missing something, right? Like that's the problem with the MCU as a whole is while it's great at the action set pieces, the smaller character moments, happen less frequently because we don't have a running TV series that interconnects them. Like that's something that maybe Disney plus will remedy, like, because we'll have these episode to episode arcs with characters. We'll get to really get to know them better and have those smaller character moments. But yeah. at the end of the day, we don't get to have them in the movies because there's, there's a time limit. Um, but I, I also, I also agree with what Tom is saying is like, you know, he's a father now he has a small child. So, in my experience with the parents I know who were bitter teenagers at one point who are now the parents of children, a lot of that goes away. Once you have a child or you have a family or you have a life that enriches you in some way or another, things from your past that might have at one point bothered you or upset you tend to fade. And also think about where Tony was coming from. His rage was fueled by a man who wasn't even in control of his faculties. And so a lot of it was irrational. And so like rationality gets to come more into play as he's settling down and starting to relax and build this family. Exactly. And so while I would have loved to see the friendship rebuild naturally via the movie, I also don't think it's out of place. I just wish we had those moments. I wish we got to see them rebuild their friendship. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, what did you guys think of the funeral scene? I was a sobbing mess. So uh, for a lot of reasons, like I thought the funeral scene was great. I thought that it was a little bit of a bummer though, that we don't get a funeral for vision yeah. or, yeah. or uh, black widow that feels a little empty, even though we get that moment, like yeah. why aren't they also being honored here? Um, but, but that said also like on a meta level, I, I, was with these movies for a decade and like Iron Man was the first of these heroes. And so I was a sobbing mess, not just because of that moment, which was mm -hmm. definitely designed to make you feel that way, but also because this character I've spent a decade with is gone, not forgotten, but gone. And so there's a little bit of, of a funeral in our own hearts as far as, at least for <laughs> me, cause I'm a sap, uh, this this idea that this character that meant so much to me that as a kid i always dreamed of seeing on the big screen was on the big screen kicked ass and is now gone forever and we're not going to get him back again until they decide to find some to young, do a prequel movie yeah prequel movie or they decide to re just bring it back in like 2050 or something like that when we get 27k we'll have grandchildren and we'll say i remember when robert Downey jr was Iron Man? He was the only Iron Man. I can't. <laughs> Robert Danny Jr. His career was in the dumps, and he was drunk everywhere. He's like he's got like what like five Oscars now. He was an alcoholic. He was in prison. Like I mean, <laughs> the story of Robert Danny Jr. is almost as like crazy as the story of Iron Man. Um, yeah, really. Yeah. He was, at one point, he was on like a Hollywood blacklist. Like, no producer would work with him because he was so um, unreliable at work. He was like frequently drunk all the time. Um, he couldn't get in charge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah and to Mel go Gibson from that. Yeah. 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 It's just incredible. 
he won like a Golden Globe for Ally McBeal, and then like he got fired because he had two drug arrests. He was all over the place. Crazy man. Mm-hmm. But that just makes it like it doesn't mean that the alcoholism and like the reckless behavior was good now because he did a good thing. But like it makes the good thing even better that he came from such a place of like. Uh, being almost like at the end of his career and like really his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you look at the charity work that uh, Robert Downey Jr. is now trying to do. Like he's really like, I feel like he connected with this character because he's now trying to do ph- philanth- philanthropical things that Tony Stark would do, which is mm-hmm. kind of magical that this comic book character that when we were kids, we got bullied for and said, nobody, ma- you know, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Has a lasting impact is kind of neat as well like i'm curious how you guys felt with the funeral scene because i gushed a lot about it like for me again it was the metamore that was impactful like i'm a sucker for sad stories anyway but the fact that i spent so much time with robert downey jr as this character now he's gone and the sacrifice like hit me on a whole other level of like happy nerd tears as well like i'm curious if the if that moment was as emotional for for everyone else I was definitely like crying at that point too. Um, but I was also, I think from still like seeing him die, like, but yeah. I think it was like perfect. It was somber. Like no one was talking. Like you see Nick Fury come from the back. Like, I think it was, I think it was perfect. Like just to send him off and you see like the fall that happens afterwards. Like it almost, I don't know. Like, I think it almost feels, I think, I guess it almost pairs. Well, I, I think it just goes, it pairs well that like, you see Tony's funeral, and then you see like Cap, like sort of go back and like live with Peggy throughout old age, and you see those paired together as like their two endings, and it's very fitting that those are two the like, two last characters to go. Yeah, I just thought it felt earned. Like he just sac- yeah, he made the big sacrifice, and he didn't do it for selfish reasons. He did it because he knew this was this was the last play that he had in his hand. And it just felt completely earned. I got real quiet. I didn't cry, but I got really, really quiet. And I was just like, damn, he really died in this one. He didn't just get the the happy ending. And that really stuck out because he, because thinking back, like he got the happy ending. He got to have time with his daughter. He got to have time with Pepper. And then he said, you know what? I If nobody can have a potential to have a happy ending, then why should I just be the only one to have it? So him like going and helping everybody figure out time travel and then doing everything, it's kind of like in the face of him having what was really a perfect ending for him, but then going back and admitting that it's not fair for him. It's kind of selfish in a way for him to do this when he has the ability to help out. So oh, his, yeah. Yeah, this and is, his funeral was perfect for that in a way. This movie was sort of his epilogue. I and mean, when, yeah. when you think about it, like Tony got his happy ending that you would like hope for um, 30 minutes into the movie. And um, what, what, he's, what he's doing is he's giving up the happy ending that he already got in a sense, um, like he, which is worse because you, it's not an abstract for him. It's a day to day, like five years have gone by. He's used to waking up in the morning, you know, like, waking Morgan up, making her breakfast. Like that is his daily routine now. Um, and, and so he is very viscerally aware of what is, you know, 
what he is stepping away from. Yeah. Um, and in that funeral scene, you see all the people who, I mean, this is essentially like he saved the, the entire, whatever, half or the entire universe. But these are all of the people who know that he made that sacrifice, right? Those are all of the people who are aware that Tony Stark saved them all by giving it all up. So that was impactful for me just to see, um, cause you want to, you want your funeral to be everyone whose lives you've touched enough to like get a plane ticket over, you know? Yeah. Um, and they, they did that and they, you don't always get to do that, but with a big budget franchise like Marvel, they decided to get everybody, you know, at that cabin to do the scene. And I really appreciate that, that detail. Cause as it panned over faces, everyone we know, you know, everyone there has had a story and you remember the times that they've had with Iron Man and you can see that they're remembering that as well. The one thing is they did like tell the actors it was a, uh, it was a wedding. A wedding. Um, and I think you do kind of see that like there aren't as many, like people aren't crying as much as you'd sort of expect them to be because they don't know that it's a funeral. Like the acting can't be as good as it should have been. Um, for like preventing spoilers, I guess. So I don't, I don't know about that, but um, who all did they the think was getting married at the end of this movie? Jeez. Well, Tony and Pepper, maybe. Oh, maybe. But then, oh man, they did must have done a lot of digital adding here. <laughs> yeah, because I think that they, I think that they must have like shot people like separately. Because I think yeah, because Pepper is in that lineup too. So like, if you see her and then like you realize, wait a minute, who's getting married? Oh, like. I think like they had to shoot everyone separately and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, they but, like, knocked a little boat and then they stepped back. Oh yeah, that's a lot of digital framing there. Yeah, and like I don't know, I think I like that like no one was like sobbing like immensely. I think I like that everyone was like just solemn and like mm. maybe there were silent tears. Maybe that was just me, but I especially love that the kid was there though. Yeah, Harley. Yeah, yeah. Friend, yeah. I immediately recognized him, and like there were a lot of folks in my theater who is that you know but i remembered and it was kind of like the, it's those little details that make the mcu as strong as it is um and like while endgame was far from a perfect movie i think it was a perfect ending for tony stark and for captain america i was so i it's the first time in a long time i walked out of a marvel movie fe feeling completely satisfied you know and i think part of that was no post credit scene and no like what's yeah. coming next it's like yeah. they wrapped it up in a way where i was like that was worth 10 years. I feel satisfied. I'm excited for the future of this, you know, that was any yeah. doubts. Uh, breaks. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To sort of transition, like it kind of like, I was kind of such a of transition. I was kind of saddened by news when I saw like, yeah, they're going to play the new far from home trailer at the end of Endgame since there's no end credits scene. And I thought like, well, that just cheapens the entire point of why there's no end credit scene because it's closing yeah. these characters, even though, like, mm -hmm. even though technically Far From Home ends in Infinity Saga, like, you don't get, like, that formal-ish closer as you do. And also, like, I was, like, worried you missed, like, the audio Easter egg, but thankfully they still kept it in there, so I was happy with that. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, I was kind of sad, like, seeing the Far From Home trailer at the end, because I'm like, yeah, so now I know what's coming. But I guess you gotta promote your movie somehow by to make up for like not talking about for like four months <laughs> yeah yeah mm -hmm. i mean the best promo for that movie was endgame and yeah. before we got but you know 
Oh. Okay, so small aside, the first episode of Euphoria, like the first full episode for Euphoria is on YouTube. Oh, it is? Yeah. Whew. Whew. Yeah. That HBO has that kind of money. Damn, HBO money is good money. <laughs> but that's, that's the core of the episode right there. <laughs> <laughs> At Brad. But yeah, just to transition to Far From Home, I think we've all been like talking about like, how like we've all been mentioning lines like that's like reference Stark in Far From Home. But I think the biggest one for me was when Happy was saying like, yeah, Tony Stark was like a wreck. He was always guessing everything and like never sure of himself. I think that struck me at, at like my core because like it's it's very true but even like in his technological aspects you never really saw him like i don't know i guess like not as openly as like you really thought you saw him and like that sort of struck with me and was like a very standout line that i think reverberates through the rest of like tony stars like life yeah and it's it's Good because we as the audience know that it's true. Like we've been talking today about like how messed up Tony Stark's entire life was. Hello? Oh, did I cut out there? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I was saying, trying to say was like that line is impactful, especially because like we as the audience know it to be true. Like we, we've seen behind the scenes and like we've been talking even in this episode, like most of this has been about how messed up Tony Stark was. Yeah. And then, you know, to kind of give Peter that reassurance, I think, I think that while not getting too spoilery, the strengths of Far From Home is how it uses Tony's legacy to show Peter that he can't trust everybody and that he's he's not he wants to just be a kid, just like Tony just wanted to be a person and not be a hero anymore. But the reality is he can't. That's, you know, he has he he is acknowledges that he has this ability. And if Tony's left one legacy, it's that if you can, you do because it's the right thing to do. And at the core of it, even though Tony didn't always do it for the right reasons, the bits of cap that washed over Tony is that at the end of the day, you do it because you can and because others can't. And so you have to do it for those people, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. in some ways, far from home felt to, I guess, be as non spoilery as possible. Far from home, felt like Peter Parker's civil war in the sense that like something broke in him but that, that's a I feel like that's a huge spoiler sorry about that but like that's what I almost like looking back now like that's how I, I almost saw it as because like yeah, Peter just like I you see like towards like the near like near I guess like the third act of the, near like the start of the third act for the movie like Peter's a broken man and yeah. you really see that. And there are almost some echoes almost to like civil war when Tony's at like his lowest points, like just like that emotional sadness. But instead of like beating people up, like he talks it out. So yeah, yeah it shows like that. Like a good amount of emotional intelligence, which I had not really thought of before, but I also thought it echoed to Iron Man 3. Because, and this, I don't think this is considered a spoiler, but people ask him about uh, being an Avenger and like what, what's going on next? Like, where do the Avengers meet? And he like has like a little panic attack because he just, he doesn't feel prepared for these questions. He doesn't feel that, that he's ready for that, the next step. And it, well, 
Yeah, and then we talk about how, um, you know, Tony was holding himself to the standard of his father. And, like, what was the biggest catharsis for him was his father getting on that uh, video and saying, I, I think you're already better. Or, like, I um, believe you've already surpassed the, the level that I set. Now Peter has to turn around and be like, I hold, you know, how can I possibly hold myself to the standard of Tony Stark? Um, and Happy gets to come in and be like, you've already, you know, in many ways surpassed that standard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest downside to Tony's legacy in these movies is how it's sort of infected the Spider-Man story. Like, I do love yeah. that we have Spider-Man in the MCU. I'm internally grateful for that. Um, and Spider-Man's not even one of my favorite characters. He's just a character I like a lot. But it's a bummer that, again, as I said earlier in the episode, we lost some of that DIY. And I'm really hoping in Spider-Man 3, whatever the third movie is, that we at least get more of Peter being Peter. Because Peter trying to be like Tony is interesting at first. But at the end of the day, I, I know the kind of character Peter Parker's supposed to be. And he's in there. And we see the quips. And we see those moments, especially in Far From Home. But it's still not enough. I feel like he's still trying to be Tony Jr. And I don't like that as much because it goes against everything that the original Peter Parker was. And while characters can evolve and change, and I'm I'm here for that, what makes Spider-Man a unique hero is that he's just like everybody else. But right now, he's not. He's flying on fancy jets. He's having suits made for him. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I want to get back to the core of Spider-Man that is not it influenced by Tony Stark. It's the only place I'd say where I don't like Tony's legacy being so overwhelming. But again, I think that's kind of by design and far from home, right? The thing that fuels yeah. the whole third act right. is that to- is that Peter's looking for a replacement for Tony because, you know, that's what he thinks the answer is. Yeah. yeah. Like I hate how basically Stark was a MacGuffin through the glass through like I <laughs> yeah. Spoiler I guess a spoiler warning through like how, yeah Basically, Stark was a MacGuffin, and that felt like really like okay, we're going to do this again. And it felt like a it felt like there were almost a form of home that felt like a rehash of Homecoming. But I also yeah. do agree that like you can't not talk about Tony Stark in this film because yeah. Endgame just happened. So it's like a I guess it's like a double edged sword from coming out right after Endgame because like you just. Because, yeah, like, you're coming off a film. You're coming off of, like, you're the next film after a film that just made, like, $2.7 billion and almost beat Avatar. And Rip. you're going to, you're going to reap those, pros- yeah, you're going to reap, like, those, like, those like, successes. Like, I think Spider-Man, like, I think Far From like, broke some record. Like, it made $580 million over, like, six days, which is, like, the highest total, like, that's been made, like, over, like, yep. six days, like weekend ever or I, I don't remember the statistic but you financially you absolutely read those benefits and like like that legacy of like Tony Stark in your story like there in some moments it pays off in far from home but to have it just almost like very near suffocating your story feels yeah. that's why like and I was just checking up on discord and Anthony was saying like yeah like no Far From Home is better than Homecoming. I'm like, that's blatantly wrong. And I'll continue to say that Homecoming is better than Far From Home. I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. The one thing that I, I will you. say... That's a good hill that I will guy. say don't is... Don't worry. <laughs> the, from a Tony Stark perspective, the really important component of Far From Home is 
that um, your impact on the universe does not end when when you die. Like yeah. the, right. the, that idea of sort of the legacy of what you left behind has to be resolved after you are gone is a very interesting question. I think it is a very real question. Um, and it was a question that this movie decided to tackle. Um, maybe at the expense of Spider-Man, but certainly not to the expense of the MCU. Yeah, and I would say that on the whole, it does a good job, right? Like, yeah. it does let us wrestle with those questions. I just think as a, again, a lot of my nitpicks about the MCU come from a traditionalist place, which I try not to be that much, but also from a character base. Like, Spider-Man's character is dwarfed in this movie a little bit because of Iron Man. But considering how much Iron Man and Spider-Man have been intertwined since Civil War, it does make sense. Whether it's my favorite thing about it or not, it definitely does make sense. And honestly, again, without getting too spoilery, the way that Tony's legacy wraps into the whole third act after the bar scene is brilliant. And we couldn't have had that without his legacy. Yeah. That's true. Absolutely. I completely uh, concur with that. And I actually have been sitting on this like weird take that we're going to get real DIY Apparently, there's like an idea that there's going to be nine Spider-Man movies, and I just wholeheartedly don't think we're going to have Peter Parker for all of them. I think we're going to get Miles Morales no. at some point. So no, when we I finally agree. get that, like, I feel like that's going to be a real DIY, like P DIY Spider-Man going forward. Because I don't know, I just I don't have like any deep like uh, what do you call it deep material into this. Because I also have the theory that we're going to get X-Men somehow through Spider-Man. Some little Easter egg or something like that sooner or later. Yeah. But I feel like that's going to be the more DIY character going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Like, And by your logic, Chris, like we've seen five films with Spider-Man already. So by that logic, there's four left in some capacity. Exactly. So there's... There's a bunch of room to grow it. And I could... Oh, it's so hard to talk about Far From Home without spoilers. <laughs> but I could see I could see Spider-Man going the route of Mysterio is all I'll add to your point. And hopefully... Yeah. <laughs> oh, I get it. I think I get what you say there. I think I got I got you. I got you. Hey, Izzy. Where yeah. can people find you on the interwebs? You can follow me at Delirwin on twitter and hey. yeah that's it yeah <laughs> hey uh storm again anything you'd like to plug sure i'd love to uh first thanks for having me on the show i love being on this uh it's one of my favorite marvel podcasts um Aww. uh you can find me on the internet uh in most places at DJ underscore Stormageddon. Um, I have Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the whole nine yards. Um, I'm a host of many podcasts. Um, the one dealing the most with movies, TV, and film is my podcast, Screen Snark, that I do with um, Rachel Shank, where we cover recent media and how it influences the world around us. It's a fun roundtable conversation with a guest every two weeks. But uh, you can find all of my podcasts if you go to uh, Stormageddon NYC on facebook.com. Um, my Facebook page is probably the best place to find all the things I'm working on. Um, but yeah, I uh, 
I could plug all of my podcasts individually, but that would take three years. So since there are many of them, so I'll, I'll spare you from that. But go to my Twitter or my Facebook. That's the best way to keep up with all the stuff I work on. And Chris, anything uh, you want to plug? Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me back again. I thought you guys would have gotten tired of me. <laughs> weird theories. But uh, yeah, no. Um, we have anything we want to plug. Uh, at Nerdcraft Nation is our Twitter handle for our uh, more comics and anime movie podcast. I am available at CWLKR20 on Instagram and Twitter. Um, what we just dropped our Far From Home podcast and our Dark Phoenix. Um, I don't want to say review as much as just like toasting to how bad it was. Yeah, that's a fair <laughs> way. To that. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a light, a light roast. A light roast. A light roast. Uh, you know what? I would say it's the equal amount of roast that me, Izzy, and so. And Sabs Clark there did the other day. So equal level. Thomas, where can people <sighs> find you on social media? You can find me at Thomas underscore AP Marvel at Twitter. <laughs> I've been waiting to do that for so long. Please consider following. <laughs> and maybe we'll think about it. I'll tweet. <laughs> so that's that's me plugging me. <clears throat> All right, uh, I want to uh, do a special thank you to our guests today. Thank you guys so much for coming back time and time again to talk about Iron Man. Um, we have some exciting stuff going on at AP Marvel. Um, we are uh, planning some bigger, more complicated and structured episodes in the near future. So look forward to us trying new things there. Uh, Izzy, can you think of anything else we want to shout out to our listeners before we close? Um, no, I think that's it. Um, yeah, keep an eye out on like yeah, AP Marvel, like us as a podcast to just, yeah, keep more. On that, yeah, just keep more good content coming. And yeah, we're really excited for what's to come. And we hope you are too. Thank you to Charles Villanueva for our graphic. Steve Maltar for our music. Oh, and subscribe to AP Marvel um, wherever podcasts are featured Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, Anchor. Yeah. <laughs>